reading from Acts chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he should find any belonging to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so he went on his way, and as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing nothing. And Paul rose But though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither eating nor drinking. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why did Jesus appear directly to Saul? Why did Jesus appear directly to Saul? This special experience, a space-time experience of a voice speaking from heaven, light shining around him. Why did Jesus appear directly to Saul? When I was an atheist, I would often say, if God wants to convert me, well, he can just show up right now and demonstrate himself to me. And you've heard the same arguments given. And Saul got that. He got this dramatic conversion. Why? Speaking of dramatic conversions, our household had a bit of a dramatic conversion this weekend. Um, It's probably more profound for our six-year-old dog, Tiglath Pileser III, uh, affectionately known as Tiggy. Yes, the king of Assyria. Um, Tiggy, who's been an only child for six years now, uh, has now a little brother as uh, our puppy came home on Friday. And it was kind of a dramatic conversion, and we're pretty sure that Tiggy's not impressed. Um, Only child now has to share the attention. He's got this little mini schnauzer nipping at him, wanting to play with him. Tiggy wants nothing to do with him. It was prophetic that we named him Leviathan, because Leviathan is the Hebrew sea monster, and what Tiggy is dealing with is that truly a monster has moved into his house. It, his, it's a conversion. Tiggy's life will never be the same. Dramatic conversion. But to our text, why does Saul get this dramatic conversion moment? Why don't you and I, why doesn't the people who we love, who we want to see come to faith, why don't they get the same kind of road of Damascus kind of experiences? Few believers, very few believers, have such a profound encounter with Jesus like Saul did. Most of us experience conversion a little more like Charles Wesley did, or or John Wesley. John Wesley, who writes in his journal, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death, right? Wesley's experience of having a heart strangely warmed is a much more common experience than a light from heaven and a voice saying, why are you persecuting me? So why did Jesus appear so directly to Saul? I mean, in one sense, it became a great jumping off point for Saul into his ministry. He's going to come back to this two different times in the book of Acts. Chapter 22 and 26, he's going to retell this road to Damascus experience. For him, it was central to his call. And yet I think that the reason that Jesus appears so profoundly and dramatically to Saul, the reason that Jesus has this story told three times in the book of Acts is because this moment, this conversion of Saul is not just for Saul's sake. This moment of conversion, this dramatic conversion is showing us what is truly going on in our own conversions. Perhaps our conversions will not look quite as dramatic Yet Jesus is just as present, Jesus is just as purposeful in the conversion of every single person who meets him. You see, in in Saul's conversion, we see three things that are present in each of our conversions. Saul's conversion becomes kind of a picture to say, let me show you what's really going on, even in your own perhaps muted, quieter conversion. In Saul's conversion, we see that Jesus is pursuing Saul. It's not the other way around. Jesus is pursuing Saul. But not only is Jesus pursuing Saul, we also see that Jesus in this conversion story is putting Saul to death. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Not only is he pursuing him, he's putting him to death. And finally, in his conversion, Jesus is preparing Saul for mission. Pursuing him, putting him to death, and preparing him for mission. First, in Saul's conversion, Jesus is pursuing him. It's not the other way around. Nothing in Saul was asking for this. Nothing in Saul was asking for this encounter with Jesus. We see this in verses 1 and 2. We begin hearing Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is on his way to continue his murderous actions against Christians. What's amazing is ever since the death of Stephen, which we looked at last week, At the end of chapter 7, after Stephen, the first martyr's death, chapter 8 is this beautiful picture of the shocking conversions of the world. The church gets scattered into the world, and these shocking conversions happen, and they get amplified. The first conversion in verse 4 is a bunch of Samaritans. Samaritans can hear the gospel. Samaritans can be converted. That's a shock. But then, later in chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch gets converted. This is a foreigner who is a political leader gets converted because of the gospel. Shock, bigger shock, and now finally in chapter 9, the biggest shock of all, 
we get the persecutor of the church getting converted. And when I say the persecutor of the church, this really, I think for Luke, is kind of his title for Saul, the persecutor of the church. In verse four, when Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting that the word there for persecution, persecute, Luke will only end up using that word in the whole book of Acts to refer to Saul of Tarsus. Every time persecution is referenced, it's in reference to Saul of Tarsus. In other words, in one way for Luke, he's kind of saying, this is the persecutor par excellence of the church. This is the one. Now, that doesn't mean there's not other persecutors, and we ourselves are persecutors of Christ, and we'll get to that in a moment, but he is the picture of the persecutor of the church, which means Saul is not pursuing Christ. Jesus Christ is pursuing Saul. Jesus is coming for him, to him. You see, it's profound. Even in our day, we continue to hear uh, these kind of heretical uh, views of theology about the way God interacts with his people. You've heard it before, you know, um, you know, you've got to meet God halfway. Or, you know, God helps those who help themselves. I'm sure that's somewhere in 3 Corinthians. It's not true. We see again and again in Scripture that God in his mercy and grace, he takes the initiative. He takes the action. He comes to us when we don't even want him. Jesus is pursuing Saul, not the other way around. I like how today we need to hear St. Augustine when he was in his day arguing with the Pelagians, those who thought that God in salvation did kind of half the work and we make up the other half of work. Hear what Augustine said. It could apply today to, to this story. Augustine is talking about this story in the face of that heresy. And he says this. He says, tell me, I beseech you, what good Paul willed and not rather great evils when breathing out slaughter. He went in horrible darkness of mind and madness to waste to the Christians. For what merits of a good will did God convert him by a marvelous and sudden calling from those evil to good things? I mean, when you look at Saul's life, what Luke wants us to know is this man was an enemy of the gospel. This is the persecutor of the church. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. Saul's not pursuing him. Jesus is pursuing Saul, pursuing this murderous persecutor. I don't remember back in the 80s and 90s, there was the common terminology for seeker services, seeker-sensitive services. This is around the time I was converted. And I'm all for seeker services, that flavor of trying to make a bridge to help people interact in a more easy, gentle way as they first come into the church. And, and you know, you have drama ministry every Sunday. And, and, and many of those churches, by the way, eventually moved away from that complete view because they realized uh, that they kind of lost discipleship in the process. It was all about, you know, inviting people in, but don't really challenge them in the gospel. But regardless of what you think about seeker-sensitive services, the name was just wrong. See, these weren't seeker services because we're not really seeking God. God is the one seeking us. 
God is the one who seeks a fallen and broken humanity. Now, when we come to Jesus, we think it feels like we're seeking him, but God puts that desire and that intention within our hearts. If God had not planted that desire, we would never be seeking after him. He comes to seek after those who are rejecting him. We sang it today. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. He sought us. John 15, you did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you. You see, we see in Saul's conversion that Jesus is the one pursuing Saul, not the other way around. But also we see in Saul's conversion that Jesus is putting Saul to death. He's putting him to death. This is a death and resurrection story. We get resurrection next week. This week, it's all death. Look at the text. Verse 4 says that after the light shone around him, falling to the ground, it says. Now, in one sense, people have interpreted this as kind of a fall from pride. As Flannery O'Connor once wrote, I reckon the Lord knew the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. Right? But it's, it's not just a sense of pride, him being knocked down from that. Falling to the ground literally is falling to the ground. This is the picture of someone who is in agony who may even be dying. He falls to the ground, the ground from which man came. He falls back to that ground. And then verse 9 says that he was without sight, which is not just about the spiritual blindness, but rather without sight can also imply he's in darkness. He ain't alive. You can't see if you're dead. And then it says, and he took no food or drink. And it could be fasting, or it could be the fact that dead people don't eat or drink. What does Jesus say to them after he raises Lazarus from the dead? Give him something to eat, because dead men don't eat. This man has fallen to the ground, he's blind, he's not eating or drinking, he's dead. And if you think I'm making this all up, Luke gives us the hint, verse 9, for three days. For three days days he had no sight and did not eat or drink. For Luke, the phrase three days refers to the death of Jesus. It refers to the tomb. Luke is saying, Jesus met this man on the road and he killed him. He put him in the tomb. Saul is in the tomb. The old Saul is dying, is dead on the ground in the tomb because Christ must kill us if he is to convert us. Because it is not about tinkering with someone who's almost good enough. This is not a story of someone who's pretty good that needs a few adjustments in the gears. No, this is the story of dead people, sinners, enemies of God who are to be made like Christ. And therefore, the old man must die so a new man can be born again. As C.S. Lewis wrote, in other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, means unlearning all the self-conceit 
and self-will that we have been training ourselves as human beings into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. And we're going to see that next week when Saul is baptized. He has his resurrection moment. For Christians, baptism is our death and resurrection moment. We die as we go into the waters of baptism, and we are born again as we come out. Look at verse 18 of chapter 9. This is next week, just giving you a little, you know, preview. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The man who was dead in baptism is now alive again. Jesus has come in Saul's conversion to put the old man to death. Many years later, Saul of Tarsus will write these words describing what baptism is. He himself, the man who went through this baptism, will describe for us what is happening in each of our baptisms. He says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know? It's a long reading. Just go with me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? This is the gospel. Christ comes to put us to death, to put the old man to death, that a new person, a new man, a new woman can rise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote these words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or maybe a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out in the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. The first memory verse that I was given when I was a new believer was Galatians 2.20. And I just still can't get past that first memory verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, in Saul's conversion, Jesus is not only pursuing him, but Jesus is putting him to death. 
that he may rise again to new life. But finally, in Saul's conversion, Jesus is preparing him for mission. This is not just a story of conversion. This is a story of vocation and calling. It's like our text from Mark chapter 1. Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee and saw Andrew and Simon casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And what does Jesus say? Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Don't you love how Jesus links that together? He doesn't say follow me and then down the road we'll figure out whether you're the cream of the crop disciples who get to you know, be fishers of men. No, the calling is linked in with the mission. If you follow me, you'll be on mission. The two go hand in hand together. Jesus in this moment, even in Damas- on the Damascus road, is preparing Saul for mission. And we see that in the way that Jesus calls to him. Verse four, he uses his name twice. Saul, Saul. And you may think, well, was it for emphasis? Why did Jesus say Saul, Saul? Well, Saul knows his Hebrew Bible better than we do. And every instance in the Hebrew Bible where God uses a person's name twice is a call into ministry. Genesis chapter 22, verse 11. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on your son Isaac. And then goes on to talk about how he will make him a multitude before the nations in blessing. Genesis 46, verse 2. Jacob, Jacob, do not be afraid to go into Egypt, for I go with you. Exodus 3, verse 4, Moses, Moses, you shall be my voice before Pharaoh to set my people free. And my favorite of all, 1 Samuel 3, 10, the boy Samuel before the altar, Samuel, Samuel, to be his prophet and his priest before the Lord. Saul knows this Bible. And when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and those first words are, Saul, Saul, in that moment he knows what vocation moment is coming out of this. What mission is coming out of this. And he says it in verse six. In verse six, he says, you are to rise, go into the city and you will be told what you're to do. There's something to be done. There's a mission before you. It's like Michelangelo, perhaps the world's greatest sculptor, would say that every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. He says, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. And so it is when God looks on a persecutor of the church, when God looks on an enemy of the gospel, when God looks on you and me, In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, he sees what no one else can see. He sees the missionary that he's going to carve and sculpt until he sets that missionary free. Saul, in his conversion, is being prepared for mission. We'll see next week in verse 15. The Lord says to Ananias of this persecutor, this enemy of the gospel... Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Who would have thought? You see, what we see in Saul's conversion 
is a picture not just of his own conversion, but a picture of what happens in our own conversions. Why did Jesus appear directly to Saul? Not just for Saul's sake, but for ours, to see what God has done in us. When we have come to Christ, or when we in this room are still considering coming to Christ, it is because Jesus has pursued us, not the other way around, calling us to himself, putting us to death, and preparing us for mission. See, as an unbeliever, this is what Jesus is doing right now in this world. He's pursuing those who do not know him, going before, grabbing a hold of them. He is, he is putting them to death. It's painful, but he's calling them to a new life. And finally, he is preparing those, and if you're in this room, he's preparing you even for mission. But for believers, he keeps doing it. He ain't done with you yet. You see, this conversion story keeps happening in our lives. The one who has converted us, if we're believers, continues to pursue us, continues to go before us and call us even deeper into relationship with him. Calls us even more to a renewed relationship with him. The one who already called him to him, us to himself, he is also putting us to death. Yes, this continues. You know, what sin in my life needs to be put to death? What ambition or planning or control needs to be put to death today? Well, he'll do it. He'll put it to death in you and me because he is sending us on mission. What is he preparing us for? How is he sculpting us for this next season of mission before you and before me? I close with this story that some of you have heard a little bit of it, but a number of years ago, I played an April Fool's joke on Monica. I've never been good at April Fool's. I always forget that it happens. By the way, I think this year on Easter, it's April Fool's. Not sure what we're going to do with that liturgically. But April Fool's, I've always missed it. But in 2014, I didn't miss it. I remembered. I was up early in the morning, and I had a brand new iPhone some of you have heard the story. And I figured out how I could get the old iPhone and the new iPhone to text one another and I could change the contact information so it looked like the one iPhone was my bishop texting me. And so I came into the bedroom that morning with a text on my new phone that looked like it was from my bishop that said this, I swear before the Lord, this is a true story. I said in this, Bishop Charlie Masters was texting me saying, Paul, when we speak later today, this is 2014, when we speak later today, I want to talk with you about a possible move in your ministry. I'm thinking that we should send you to serve in Plano, Texas. This is not a lie. I picked the place that seemed most unlikely, furthest from me, there was no way we'd ever go there. Don't play games with the Lord. <laughs> and I wrote this text, and I expected that when Monica read it, she was going to throw the phone across the room. That's why I gave her the old phone. Throw it across the room. She'd be angry about it because we were so settled in Ottawa. We had just talked about the fact that we were never going to leave Ottawa. And do you know what she did? I handed her the phone. She read the text. And then she sat up and said, well, I guess we got to start praying about that. She ruined April Fool's. But what happened in that moment in 2014 was God began 
something in Monica and I. I made this stuff up. Who, came, who did it come from? See, Jesus was already pursuing us, going before us. We didn't even dream of coming here. He began something. He was pursuing us. And something began to die in us that day. Something happened in that moment where we started dying to the idea that we'd live in Ottawa till we were old. And a new mission he began preparing in our heart. Because this is what he does. In our conversions and continually again and again in our lives as Christians, we are on this Damascus road. And Jesus is meeting us. He comes. He's pursuing us, putting something new to death in us that needs to die and so that he can prepare us for this next season of mission. Jesus says, I pursued you. I put you to death. And I am now preparing you for mission. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.